Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton. I'm here with Matt. Say hello, Matt. Hey, guys. And I'm here with John. Say hello, John. Hey, guys. <laughs> and gals. <laughs> I guess guys. <laughs> hello, everyone. Got one. Uh, hey, all you cool cats and kittens. <laughs> you know, greeting uh, an amorphous, non-existent group of people is really difficult. It's almost as if when we talk about people... We need to think about them as storied individuals. Ah, oh, that's good. And that's our topic. Yeah. Uh, is we're going to yeah. talk about narrative and story and how this then uh, yeah. is I think that's good. in the Gospels and in our understanding of Christianity is playing a key or central role that perhaps for many has been lost but it is now reappreciated, I think, across the theological spectrum. I think that you should use mine. Whenever you say, say hi, Matt, <laughs> I want you to use, hey, all you cool cats and kittens. That damn Carol Baskin, I can't stand that. You know that Carol bitch Carol Baskin, she done fed her husband to the tigers. That Carol Baskin. That's my best <laughs> Joe Exotic impersonation. He's, he's very litigious. Yes, yeah, very litigious. <laughs> It just reminded me of my whole experience. I don't. I know probably nobody else thought of that when they were watching, but that's the way I think of Oklahoma. Because when I was a child, we we lived out in the country. That's what everybody thinks. That's a general stereotype. See that it's a shared experience. We lived out and we lived on the airport and we lived on the rodeo grounds, and it was actually the place where oh, the wow. Barnum and Bailey Circus would set up. As a child, I would go play with the circus children. Some of my earliest memories, you know, they, of course, they always had animals. They had horses. And so I don't know, I probably, I don't know, six, seven years old, and the kids put me on one of their horses and slapped it with a whip and sent me running across the pasture with no control. And, it, of course, I fell off, and it knocked the wind out of me. And I'd never experienced that. I, I didn't know what had happened, but I couldn't breathe. Wow. And all the circus children came and surrounded me and started laughing at me, trying to <laughs> catch my breath. And so anyway, we worked, wow. we worked for the circus there in, in Ponca City. I was hardly old enough to work, but my job, they would, uh, we worked at the Drake stand. And the guys would set me up on the ice and then they say, okay, your job is to sit on this ice and we're going to time you as to how long you can sit on the ice. Uh, I don't remember what the time was. But then we got to eat with all the circus people, the tallest man in the world, the fat lady, the human cannonball. If Joe Exotic had shown up for breakfast, he would have fit right in. He's exactly who I would have thought would be at breakfast. So, Paul, to be clear, whenever you think about Oklahoma, you think white trash, <laughs> carnies, and circus. That's right. Uh, isn't that what everybody thinks? I mean, you have to remember, Joe Exotic like ran a legitimate campaign for governor of Oklahoma. Yeah, and he got votes. Like That's all you got to say. <laughs> <laughs> on the white trash <laughs> ticket i think and oddly enough i also i also associate carol baskin with florida i mean the most the most amazing thing to me out of, the, out of all that is that he convinced two guys that weren't gay to marry him <laughs> Why, look it's one thing to get to, to convince someone who's gay, you know, like, oh, well, you man, two tigers and a bag of meth. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like it's that's enough of a feat, right? It's like you meet a gay guy, and it's like, you know, will you marry me? That's one thing, but it's to meet not one but two straight guys and to get them to agree to marry you. That is next level game right there. That's why he's that's, Joe Exotic. Uh, that's tigers. That's that's the whole point. Like that's they're all using tigers to have sex cults. Basically, what I got out of the show. I never thought it's of just, the tiger as a, an erotic lure. I me either, but you know. Oh, this girls, the chicks dig the big cats, man. Apparently, I mean that was whole Jeff Lowe's whole <laughs> thing. They right? do. It's crazy. Now I he's mean, clarified I mean, that these women are not his wives. 
You know what's funny? I used to live in Myrtle Beach. And for all I know, I mean, I was so blacked out during that whole time. It's like, for all I know, I was there. You know, I was at Doc Like, you could have been watching Tiger King and saw yourself on some of this old footage. Yes, I might have, like, witnessed it firsthand. And well, I just don't remember it. I think this is kind of an endless subject. Well, like, most of the subjects <laughs> we're taking, taking up. But I think this this is key. You know, we've not named a lot of this, but clearly what we're describing is the movement beyond fundamentalism and modernism. And so we're no longer caught up in the whole historical critical and the, the whole uh, modernist notions about searching. You know, you could almost depict the search for the historical Jesus as a quest story that is itself misdirected. It may seem like a kind of simple thing, but this simple focus on narrative, in fact, I think is the means of moving beyond the impasse of modernity. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that this provides an excellent segue into our conversation for today too, right? Because there's all these sort of competing narratives. There's these different stories that people want to tell about who God is. I think, you know, Paul, you said something in that documentary that John MacArthur says that unless you believe and subscribe to penal substitution, you can't be saved. And of course, the whole doctrine of penal substitution is then extremely closely linked with justification by faith. And so that's at the forefront of that story, right? That's being told there about, okay, this is what it's all about. It's about believing in the, you know, penal substitution so that you can be justified by faith. That's at the forefront of the Christian story. But we have been telling a, quite a different story using Douglas Campbell and others. Um, we used Kierkegaard last week to talk about the truth is the way. We've talked about the primacy of God's love and goodness being at the forefront. What's really at the forefront is the story uh, of God, you know, as it's revealed in, in Jesus Christ. But we're going to talk about that today. So we're going to talk about God and story. John, how is the conversation that we have been having up to this point about the one God who is love and who is truth? How is that story, you know, what, first of all, why is it an important aspect of the conversation? And, and how is it different than maybe some of the stories that we're used to? Hearing? Yeah. So um, when we say something like God is love and God is truth, we're referencing, of course, what we take to be attributes of God, such that God um, is not just loving, but God is love. Or God doesn't just tell the truth from time to time, but God is truth. So we recognize at some level that we're speaking about something that we can't comprehend. Uh, so how do we know about all this anyway? You know, where did we begin? And part of the place where we began was with Jesus and how Jesus is revealing God to be the God of love and the God of truth in his person. And when we talk about Jesus, we have Jesus presented to us as really in two ways in the New Testament. We In the Gospels, we have fuller stories. We have teachings of Jesus. We have Jesus doing things and Jesus in action. And it's obvious to see, well, here's a narrative that's unlocking God for us. But on the flip side, I don't think Paul's doing that any less, St. Paul's doing that any less when he continues just to proclaim Christ as the incarnate God, crucified and risen again. That's a very shorthand way of telling a story about God. We have to be very careful here, of course, because what we don't mean is that somehow God has a story in the same way that we do. And this is a distinction we've made. You know, we're, right. there's the what theologians will talk about as being the imminent trinity and the economic trinity, or God and God's self and the missions of God. And we're reflecting, in a sense, on the missions of God. What has God done in the world? What is the story God is telling really about us, even maybe more so than God's self? But this story, of course, lets us get to know God because the end of the story is that we would have eternal friendship with God. Now, another way of coming at this is also very important. When we make huge claims like God is love or God is truth, how do we make those claims? By what authorities are we speaking? A different way of asking that question is, well, what are we speaking about? We're doing theology, which is God talk. We're, we're talking about God. So the ultimate authority there isn't some logic that we can overlay on top of who God is. And so if we can just get the logic right or if we can get the puzzle right, somehow we'll have a better view of who God is. But rather, we're going to let God be the one who defines the parameters of the conversation. So Jesus is the ultimate authority, and yet we also realize that there are theological authorities. So these the authorities by which we talk about 
Jesus, who is the authority. His, uh, these authorities are traditionally scripture, the tradition of the church, and reason, reason here not being, we talked about this last week, reason here not being a type of pure reason that imagines human can, can ascend via their intellect to thinking God, but rather just a way of understanding coherence and the, the, the actual internal ordering of the tradition of the church and scripture and how those things cohere to say something true, which means we're also talking about history or stories all the way down, uh, that this whole conversation is engaged by way of story. So I think it's a rather important thing for us to be able to say that we're, we know how to tell a good story about God, um, that we're not telling bad stories or false stories, or we're not act, which would be ultimately just telling stories about ourselves. I guess I just wanted to ask maybe, you know, the question, so whenever we say that God doesn't have a story in the way that we have a story, I think I understand that. But help me to understand that in the context of, you know, the unfolding of the narrative in the Bible as we have it, you know, in the stories of the Old Testament with God's interactions with Israel. You know, of course, first and foremost, with the story that's being told in Christ uh, to just help me to sort of understand. what you mean. Yeah, I'm really just trying to be careful with the grammar being used there in the sense that when we say that you have a story, what I'm probably talking about is your life story. And that's how I get to know you, by interacting with you, both learning the stories of your past, but also creating new stories with you. And of course, that means that you as a person are in some way stretched out through time and space, and that's who you are. Right. Uh, whereas we wouldn't want to say that about God, right? So ultimately, um, God isn't one that is stretched out along a timeline which is why we actually, in, in some sense, need history or historical revelation to get to know God, because we're not as finite beings capable of comprehending God who is pure act, uh, is a real philosophical way of putting that. And so what does God do for us? Well, God tells us a story is, a, is about God's missions or God's purpose or plan for creation. The economic trinity or the economy of God is to say that God the Son and God the Holy Spirit by whom, you know, God the Son through whom all things are created uh, for the Father has come into time and space. The Holy Spirit is leading, uh, you know, you, you get instances of the Holy Spirit leading the people of Israel to do things like build the tabernacle or um, descending on the prophets, but the Holy Spirit is indwelling the church. So we know all of this, but that's a cooperative story. And so we realize that that story isn't just, uh, it's not God's life history, but it is a nice analogy in a sense, because we also realize our own stories are that way, that we don't have a story apart from our cooperation with other human beings and our cooperation with God, our cooperation um, in community, that sort of thing. Does that make sense? Like, I, it really is just a simple grammatical distinction to say that I'm not in some way claiming that God is within time or space, that God doesn't, God isn't history. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, some theologians get this really wrong. So I do think we need to say it. Yeah, no, and I think that that's right. You know, and, and my story uh, isn't even really all that intelligible apart from God's, my, my sort of participation in his in his story, right? Like my, it was, a, it was just a mess, you know? And the other thing that I would just want to add to that is, is that all of our human stories are always, uh, because of our finite existence, are always then related to the, to the creation in a way that God's relationship with creation isn't. My story is in some way determined by creation and God's isn't. Right. And so it's, it's like for him, it's just a revelation of who he is. That's right. Well, and that's because, you know, our stories have to do with, like, sometimes we make progress in becoming more human. I mean, sometimes we regress. Uh, we have good days, we have bad days, but we don't, that that doesn't make sense in reference to God, right? God is the good, so. Yeah, and we want to welcome back Paul Axton to the Forging Plowshares this is the second week in a row we, John and I have just been having a discussion just sort of yammering on for you know a long time I didn't want I didn't want to interrupt the the uh, grand chemistry oh no 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 we want to bring you in because this is actually really this has been you know at the forefront of your work you know the the role that that story has for us as individuals. And I, you know, you're always so good at telling us the the false stories, right? That would normally constitute us. 
I guess I wanted you to talk, you know, to just sort of help us to understand that what does it mean for us to be storied as mm-hmm. individuals, you know, how that's fit into your work and maybe even some of those false stories that we normally would tell about ourselves. Yeah, I, I think there's several ways we can approach it. And one, you know, if you just begin with, well, what is it that we have if we don't imagine a kind of narrative reality? I think that's, in fact, where most people begin, that they're really not thinking of narrative as the prime reality. And so this is a notion that comes to us, I think, through a Judeo-Christian understanding. It may be that story plays a part, but many people may in fact not acknowledge that. The obvious case is that we were talking about the difference between a kind of propositional understanding of Christianity and the notion of talking about Jesus as the center and the person of Jesus. And so we're still in that transition. We're describing the transition, the implication of personhood, of taking God, understanding God as a person, and in Christ then the personhood of God is revealed to us, so that narrative reality is not a secondary reality. You know, this was the way that uh, people would just kind of extract the propositions or the law or the, the facts or the doctrines from out of the narrative that makes up the prime part of the Old and the New Testament. So there is that obvious thing, but, but let me suggest that in fact, I think that as individuals, and maybe peculiarly modern individuals, but I don't think it's peculiar to the modern, that we tend not to think of prime reality in terms of narrative. I would suggest this is a human predicament that, that you're going to find in most places. And if you think about, again, the work that I did in you know, Romans 7 and what is taking place in Romans 7, there's no story in Romans 7, right? There is just this, in fact, there's no people, plural. There's one person, I. But this I is in a kind of dialectic in which, if you think in Lacanian terms, you know, Paul is using the language the Greek word, I think, is blepo, but throughout, the, the language is the language of the visual in Romans 7. It's going to shift in Romans 8. It's already sh- shifted from Romans 6. So that Paul is reflecting what in a psychoanalytic understanding, particularly a Freudian or Lacanian understanding, we might refer to as the law of the mirror. And what what this might mean is that Paul will refer to law, and we might just say, well, that's the symbolic order, or that's language. But language here is halted. When we say law, we're not talking about the dynamics of a story. We're talking about language that's frozen. It's, you know, chiseled in stone. I think that quite literally this is what's happening in a failed humanity that the, you know, if you want to refer to it as law, if you want to refer to it as a kind of obscene superego, this is not a story that's flowing or that we're fitting ourselves into. This is an oppressive command. This is an oppressive father figure. This This is a language that does not move forward. This is a language that, in fact, is stuck. And quite literally, you know, if you wanted to identify how people are sick, one of the prime ways, I think you find it in Scripture, the dog returns to its vomit, the pig returns to its wallow, what Freud will call the compulsion to repeat. This is the prime force of the law. That is that you're continually attempting to, in some way, keep the law, capture the law, And it becomes this compulsive, oppressive word that is pounding upon you. So that's the that's the first register. We're describing words and language that are not narrative, but we're describing words and language that are oppressive and like more like a law inscribed on stone. 
And then the second part, you know, that Paul will talk about the ego. He actually uses the word. It is just the word for I. And the way that in a Lacanian theory, ego is called the imaginary. Here we're talking about, again, the visual. And the difference between the visual and a story is that a visual, something that, you know, we imagine we can capture through sight, it is static. If you think of the difference between a recording and lis- or listening to music and looking at pictures. Well, if you imagine that you can capture your true identity through the visual register or what Paul is calling the ego, and you're thinking about these two things, that's what he's describing. You've got two things that do not coordinate. You've got the symbolic, you've got the law, you know, that's, that's one register. The law of the mind is the way Paul will refer to this. And then you have this other thing, the ego or the, the law of the body. And there are these two forces at work and they cannot be coordinated. And so the question, we might raise the question in this way. What we're describing is a form of alienation. And we're alienated then from, in this instance, from ourself, that we're split against ourself. And obviously we, we know this alienation is going to infect everything that we're going to see other people, we're going to objectify them, but we're also going to objectify God, and this is going to work itself out in, you know, many strange ways in idolatry. Think of the idolater scene. It is a visual scene. It's primarily one in which the object, the prime object, is captured in and through sight. It's a frozen scene in which there is no story. I think that is the, the beginning of describing the human predicament, that we don't find a story that binds us together, that in fact we come at reality and in some way we're alienated, we're alienated from ourselves. And so a narrative, a story of the right kind, and I don't think it's any story or it's any narrative, but I think that's what the narrative of Christianity is doing, that this narrative dynamic then that will come to bind time together. And of course, that's really what we're describing, isn't it? That in the visual or in law, you know, we haven't said anything about history. We haven't said about anything about past, present, and future. So one of the key elements that comes to play in a narrative reality is time itself, the dynamic of time. And the way this is captured in Romans 8 is the shift. If you had to describe Romans 7 and the prime uh, impetus, it's desire. And desire then is always this frustrated desire that you cannot achieve that visual image of the eye. Chapter 8 then will turn and hope then becomes primary in this new relationship. And of course, hope by the very nature of it captures the notion of a time binding. And so I think what narrative does for us, it enables us to bind time together, or in a sense, to bind ourselves together. We find the past, the past now, in a psychoanalytic perspective, or even think of Paul, you know, when Paul talks about his past, that he talks about his being a Pharisee and a Hebrew of Hebrews, that that was definitive of who he was. All he had to do was to mark himself then by those elements of what a Hebrew of Hebrews looks like, and that told you who Paul was. That was definitive of Paul. But doesn't the past work on all of us in the same way that in some way the past has a grip on us and that steals the present and leaves us with no future? So in some way, our sickness is a sickness in which our past is the controlling element of who we are. There's no narrative. And so what occurs in a, in a narrative understanding is that the past is undone. It's changed up. Paul talks about it as being rubbish. It's not that those things are completely erased, but the past then becomes something different. And I think that's what's happening in the narrative reality of Christ. There's certainly history and there's past, there's the Old Testament, but we're going to understand that Old Testament on the basis of who Christ is. 
so too with us personally. We're going to come to understand who we are, our past, not is, is no longer going to control us, but it's changed up in the reality of the narrative of Christ, and that gives us a different present. But all of those are really changed up because of the telos, the, the, the hope that we have. So we have a different present on the basis of a different past, and we're headed toward a different future. So there, there is a different sense of time binding. And so I think this is, you know, the conformity to the image of the sun, if you just all end with this, but this is, I think, the key difference. What is it that we would conform ourselves to outside of Christ? It's a literal visual image that in some way sight becomes the privileged register. This doesn't necessarily need to be literal. It, it can be the mind's eye. You know, this is the way that philosophy works, the history of philosophy, really. They're working mentally, though, around a kind of visual objectification. One of the things that's taking place in the pursuit of the image of the sun, how do we bring about conformity to that image? This model comes to us through narrative through the word. He is the word. There is the sense that language becomes something different for us. It's no longer, I literally have this, this notion that in, in a Freudian understanding, but I think it's there in Paul, that language is in some way eating away at us as a kind of law. And I think that's undone. And we can think of this as a kind of pursuit of the Father, this is the Oedipus complex, but I think when we become a Christian, we become a child of God in the Word of Christ, and so I think all of that is there in in uh, narrative. In the New Testament, sin does, as you said, you know, it's pictured as sort of this static dog returning to its own vomit or whatever, and it's like, well, boy, that doesn't sound like a very interesting story. The pig that's been washed that goes back into the mud, it's like that repetition without a difference. The, you know, the example that's being used for what sin is, it's like that's not a very good story. So what you're describing, I think, is um, the, the dynamic of, of an embodied story rather than, you know, a, a law or language. John Douglas Campbell, you know, does some, some does some things like about, you know, story. Uh, he writes about the need to tell our stories backwards as memoirs rather than forward as, as sort of a quest. And so could you talk about what he means by that? Yeah, this is a great insight on Campbell's part. And that there's a tendency that we might think about God as uh, you know, a truth or even our salvation as a relationship with God that we need to obtain, as in we need to grasp it. It's like a prize that somehow we would win. And so we can tell our stories in such a way where we talk about why we are worthy of that prize. And so even in very deterministic theological systems, uh, that shines through. People are ready to tell you why they deserve to be the elect or, um, you know, vice versa intellectually, we might think that we would tell the stories about ourselves in such a way where we are headed someplace. It's a intellectual ascent to true knowledge uh, about ourselves and about God. But of course, we the reality of our lives don't often function that way, that it's a mixed bag of things that uh, we get right and we get wrong. Sometimes we cooperate with God's grace. Sometimes we fail to do so. And so Campbell would encourage us not to think of our stories as quests that we're questing off to, to build up towards the truth, but rather that we would look backwards and think of our lives as memoirs, and perhaps then we will see where God has been with us or where we have grown in, in God already. Because it's not as if God is somehow at a a spatial or temporal distance from us, that if we can just get to where God is, it'll all make sense. But God is with us on every step of the way. I think of the the lectionary reading for the Sunday is, of course, the road to Emmaus. And one of the beautiful bits about the road to Emmaus is that God has been with them the entire journey as Jesus has been recounting how the Old Testament scriptures relate to himself. I mean, both figuratively and literally in a story, right? That Jesus is saying, well, actually, whether you all saw it correctly or not, the people of Israel, God has been with you for this entire story. And then also on the road from wherever they began to Emmaus, 
God has been with them. And it's in the breaking of bread. It's in this realization that is given to them from Christ that they see God's presence in the journey. This is very much how our lives look, such that when we look backwards, we can think of our lives as a sort of a history of ourselves. And we might be able to see what is working out in such a way that it's meaningful and of eternal importance versus the things that don't have much meaning, the, the, the bits about ourselves that we thought were true and yet are already passing away. So Matt, I'll ask you, because I know you're a huge Kierkegaard fan, and this will tie in nicely with last week's talk, uh, because we were talking about the truth being the way is very similar to a discussion about narrative, that uh, in Kierkegaard, of course, he's talking about an importance of telling our stories backwards, even as we have to live forward. How does that manifest in both Kierkegaard's life and work? And could you share an example that might make this a bit more clear for our listeners? Well, the first thing I was thinking about is, um, we, well, yeah, there is the quote there, you know, that um, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And so I think what Kierkegaard wants me to do with that, and that is, you know, Kierkegaard's rights to the individual. It's like he wants me to think about that. And so just in context of our conversation right now, um, it's like, well, you know, there's the story that you can inhabit, the sort of story of sin, right, where it's a boring dog returning to its vomit story. It's the same thing over and over. It's like, I got high. Then I got high again. Then I got high again. And I did that for years, you know, or uh, you can tell the story in all sorts of different mundane sorts of ways. Right. Or maybe you can tell the wrong story about yourself. You know, I used to be able to throw a football over the mountain, you know, back when I was a high school football champion and you're the hero of the story. Or, you know, I, I, I have the power. I have the money or uh, however many different ways that we can sort of inhabit these various stories. And it's um almost, you know, with what you were saying with the world to Emmaus. It's like these guys are just on the precipice of a, they're about to go back to the the wrong story, right? And I mean, Jesus has to rebuke them. Doesn't he say something like, oh, you know, you foolish of heart, you know, slow to understand or something like that. He starts to explain to them because it's like they're, you know, they were so close to inhabiting the true story. And so for me, the way that I'm trying to understand my life as I look uh, you know, backwards is to go in Kierkegaard's terms. He gives us a nice heuristic of like, you know, the aesthetic and then sort of the ethical and then the religious and then there's the religiousness B and the highest. And so he wants you to kind of look back. And for me, I mean, I can certainly see it's like, oh, wow, I was really, and still, you know, you still do, right? You still inhabit the aesthetic sphere of existence or the ethical or the religious and you kind of go back and forth a little bit. But for Kierkegaard, what he wants, I think, for us to do is to he he's really serious about that second part where he says but life must be lived forwards right so he wants us to inhabit and he actually talks a lot you know but we talked last week about the truth is the way and of course the way you know then is a dynamic movement court kierkegaard's context it's a movement of faith it's a walked out existential lived out embodied truth mm -hmm. so again it's not just the idea of man, let me think of, let me understand things backwards. But Kierkegaard is saying to, we, you know, we have to embody the, the ethic of the way which is found in Jesus Christ. So it's an imitation. It's a way that we can actually do life. It's a way that we can inhabit the story, the true story. You asked about Kierkegaard's life. He had his regrets with everything that happened with Regina. You know, he broke off the engagement to her and gave his life to his work and, of course, had the big falling out with, well, really everybody in Copenhagen and even the church. I, I think that Kierkegaard wanted us to not just inhabit something like what Paul was describing earlier, like the ideal or language or the law or however other ways we want to talk about it. But Kierkegaard wants us to live the way out. He wants to actually, he wants us, you know, we're the wayfarers, right? We're the, we're the theologians on the road. He wants us to walk this thing out. So hopefully, I don't know, did that get, did that answer mm -hmm. your question? Oh, absolutely, because I think it makes a huge claim. I think you can take Kierkegaard, and of course Lacan is reading Kierkegaard, in talking about his three stages, you know, the ethical stage, or the aesthetic stage, or a story that in some way doesn't work. In other words, I think it's reflective of the pursuit of an object that in some way, as in a quest, I thought this was the good part. You know, what you're really describing in 
a kind of quest to achieve the self, that could be either aesthetically or that could be ethically. That the object is always in some way, I mean, I think actually whether we know it consciously or, uh, you know, mm -hmm. or whether it is not conscious to us, that the object that we would achieve is ultimately in some way being ourself, you know. It is the futile pursuit of life through language, through the law. And I think that gets at all of the stories that are either truncated or misdirected. And so his, his usage of the term of a memoir is that it, in fact, is the Kierkegaardian understanding. You're telling the story uh, a remembrance that you're looking back, but this looking back gives you the means to move forward. Which, of course, is how Kierkegaard himself writes. It's just so interesting. I was, was while you were talking, I was thinking my favorite thing I think about Christianity really is sort of its grandiose claim. This was Kierkegaard's thing, too, right? He's like, well, just understand the entry point into Christianity is that the internal, infinite. God the Spirit became incarnate as a temporal, finite, located human being who lived and then died on a cross, murdered by his creatures, and then rose from the dead. So he's, you know, he just wants to come around and say that, well, the ground of existence is Trinity. That of course, you know, we're gonna, this is Douglas Campbell that that we're not going to build from some other foundation. That Christ is the foundation, and we're going to move from there. And so we're making these giant claims and that and that's and that's just sort of the nature of of christianity is that it's everything it's not compartmentalized it's not just what you do on sunday morning it's not just what you do when you you know pray it's everything right and so paul can you elaborate on sort of god's self-revelation in the story of salvation as sort of the story of everything and how we're to inhabit that over and against how we normally, you know, live out our story. The picture, obviously, is that God comes to us in Christ. The whole thing that we have unfolded to us once we do what John was describing or you're describing on the, the road to Emmaus is that we're able to understand creation and the unfolding of creation and where creation is going, that we only get that through the middle. That is, we have to begin with Christ to comprehend the purposes of creation in the narrative reality of who Christ is. Once we're able to locate ourselves or understand that the meaning, the very nature of meaning, I think, is in this narrative understanding of reality as prime reality, there is a kind of continuation then in the incarnate body of Christ in the church, or if you want to think of it in the metaphor of the book of Acts. You know, some people talk about the book of Acts as there's a kind of abrupt ending there because, in fact, the acts of the Holy Spirit do not come to a culmination or conclusion, but the idea we're left hanging because that's, in fact, the nature of the reality that we've entered into. And so we locate ourselves. We locate a kind of universal meaning in this story and a local meaning. Now, that may seem to be abstract, but of course the reality of that is as we share in other people's lives, and this enables us to share in other people's lives because we have a shared narrative reality. We share a story. We share a history. And if we share this history, we, we understand this history is going in the same direction. So, you know, just think of the alternatives of a kind of naturalism or materialism or Things do not bind together. Things don't hold together, either for human beings or, in reality, for the cosmos itself. That is, that when we're talking about a narrative reality, this kind of confirmed to us in a strange way by modern physics, that we understand that, in fact, you know, one of the most mysterious things that there are is matter. You know, we always think, oh, well, he's a reductionist. He reduces everything down to matter or chemistry. Well, actually, in this day and age, that no longer makes any sense because matter, in fact, turns out not to be explanatory of anything 
and seems to have a kind of infinite depth to it. So I think there's a lot of misdirected stories, even in a kind of material. In other words, how do we gain back the cosmos? How do we gain back material reality? I think it's only in this narrative understanding in which things cohere and and are seen to to be bound together. Uh, And so, John, I guess this is where I want to ask you about when we talk about story and about God, are we talking about history? But I want to couch it in something else. I was watching a a YouTube discussion today uh, between Brad Jerzak and Bruxy Cavi, and they were talking about, you know, and it was Jerzak he brought up, I think it's in John 16, but Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, and he says, I have many things, you know, to tell you, but you can't bear it. But don't worry, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And his point was, in the context was, is, and that happens, right? Like that happens, Acts, that happens through the early church, that happens through the church councils, that the Holy Spirit really does bring all these things, you know, to the apostles' remembrance. They pass them down to the fathers. We have councils and other things who then make decisions about what we want to say about Jesus and about his natures and about his relationship to the Father, you know, all these different things. I guess I want to ask the question about story and God in that context. Are we talking about history in that, like an ecclesial history or God's movement throughout, you know, history as God's story, or is that a misunderstanding? Yeah, this is a, like, this is a really interesting way of thinking about it. Um, I think there's a, there's a type of people, theologians mainly, I guess, who want to pretend that when they claim Jesus is revealing God to us, that that somehow is not mediated through history, such that it's a it's a first order revelation that we would know then uh, what's being revealed in a way like almost on a different ontological order of knowing than we might know God say from the Council of Nicaea or the the work of the Holy Spirit. And I find that highly problematic. For one, I, I just don't know what they would be imagining, like how Jesus's revelation about God for us is historically couched as that is, how that would somehow give us unmediated access. So uh, there's a great line from Bernard Lonergan, and he says, there is history, and then there is history. There is history that is written about, and there is history that is written. And I think what he's getting at here is there's, of course, like human experiences of things, what we find ourselves in the midst of, and we we reference that sometimes even as history. And then there's also this category of history, which is the writing about and reflecting on those things. And people tend, I think, erroneously to imagine that if you have, if you somehow were a witness to a historical event, uh, of course, I mean, I guess every moment's a historical event in one sense. If you're a witness to some event, that you have some kind of unmediated access to that event. And then, you know, people who only are reading about history are at a further remove than you are. Well, we're certainly talking about a temporal distance, right? But it's not as if any of us really have unmediated access to the data of events in time and space. And so when we're talking about story, I think we are in some ways also always talking about history because we're always doing theology in the sense that we're having recourse to these authorities of scripture, which is a historical document. And it's about historical happenings that we also accept uh, transcend those categories. It's also about God. And then about the tradition, which is to say, everything from church councils to the writing of theologians and how all of those things correspond and what might be more authoritative and less authoritative. And I mean, I understand it's a spectrum, but in the same sense, if we believe really what Paul was just saying, that the Holy Spirit is active, that the book of Acts ends in the sort of metaphorical way that the story keeps on going, that God is revealed to us in and through the tradition in the church. But we also realize that even there, um, if we're talking about their tradition, the tradition includes things that we would consider to be non-revelations in the sense that the tradition isn't just some march 
towards a full disclosure of who God is, such that every step of the way is a right step. We understand that that's not the way it works. Uh, and with scripture, we realize that, well, it's left to people to interpret it, and there are better and worse and bad interpretations of scripture. So we're really beginning to ask a question. If all of this, this whole conversation is one that has historical context, then what does it mean to uh, tell the story about of God and humanity? Whose story are we telling and how should we tell it? If we're to speak about God's story, what are we speaking about? Or, or if we are going to tell the story of ourselves and everything theologically, then God is both the beginning and the end in some way. And all that is just to point to the fact that history isn't neutral, such that no historical event is neutral if we think really the purpose of all creation is to wind up in union with God, that it's this arc that is sourced by God from creation. Uh, is God is the reason for why things exist at any given, what we would call a moment, and of course that it's returning to, to God. So in some way, then, we were acknowledging already that the way we tell the story matters and that there's not a neutral way of telling the story or we can't just stand um, in an objective space and talk about our lives and say what, that, what they mean apart from the story that already is very clearly directed and takes its substance and its shape from who God is. Well, Bernard Lonergan also says that when we're doing this, what we're asking is the question of what is going forward, such that if we realize there are developments both inauthentic and authentic in uh, the church's history or the history of the interpretation of scripture or even just history, generally speaking, uh, that we achieve authentic developments that are true and good and are in some way us approaching being guided by God towards our proper end. And then there are times when we or the church would turn our backs on God and we would, we would travel that theologia viatorum that way. Um, you know, we would travel it the wrong way. We would move away from God or we would have authentic, inauthentic developments in the sense that, of course, time is still passing in some sense forward, but we could do that inauthentically. So when we ask that question, well, what is going forward? This means we're already then taking somewhat of a critical stance in regards to history, generally speaking. But, uh, and this is good, this goes back to some of the points that Campbell would like to make and what Paul was just saying, that the way in which we critique is really by continuously asking the question of who is Jesus and who is Jesus revealing God to be. So we are talking about history but not in the modernist, supposedly neutral version of history that we, we sometimes claim to uh, be able to have access to. Yeah, and I, I think that we could float off just like anything else in this sort of an abstract conversation of like, well, what does all this mean? You know, why does it matter? I know for me personally, for most of my life, I feel like I, I inhabited the wrong story and that it was, it was a death dealing. That's sort of a big deal. You know what I mean? It's like if you're if you're in that's what we're it's another big claim that we're making, right? We're saying that everyone is trying to tell us a story about how things really are, right? You could just use any example, whatever. You could say the Democrats are telling us the story. No, it's like this. The Republicans are telling us, no, the real story is this, you know, small government. Or the capitalists are saying the real story is, you know, the story of capitalism. We could just do this any number of ways, right? Because however you inhabit the story becomes your identity. And the work that Paul has done is to show that, well, unfortunately, there's a there's so many false narratives. There's so many false, you know, stories that we either are being told about who we are, or the stories that we tell ourselves, or the stories that we tell others about who we are and we presume that they're true but they're actually death dealing i mean you know the world would tell us that you know nietzsche whoever would just say well the real story is all about power or the real story is all about violence you know or the real story is all about all about freedom so that's right yeah no that's that's important right that it's all about freedom or the, po the postmodern story they would want to tell us one thing or the marxists or whoever else the american story that's a big one and what i'm what i'm getting at is that you can you really can't you, we do we embody we inhabit a particular story and i think that what we mean by that 
is a particular reality or maybe even an unreality. Kierkegaard calls it an untruth, right? He says that the crowd is untruth and probably precisely because they're not. Kierkegaard's whole thing was don't let, you know, your story just be thrust upon you from without, but make passionately, whatever, authentically make a choice to say, this is what I'm going to do. Oh, this is the idea for which I can live or die for him. It was Christianity. And I'm just, you know, most of us don't do that. We just say, well, you know, the story uh, that I tell about myself is that I'm a really hard worker. You know, I work 12 hours a day. You know, this was Ivan Illich's story. I, we had just read the book for a class that I was taking. And he was a good judge and a prosecutor. And he, he had all the popular friends. And he did very well and had servants and all this stuff. And that's just how he lived his life. And then, of course, whenever he's dying... He's doing a life review and looking back and going, man, it was all, it was that, you know, it was the wrong story that I was inhabiting. So this actually is a really important discussion, I think, that we're having, especially after everything that we've already said in these podcasts so far about the truth being the way, about the truth being what we do, about the, the truth being in accordance, not just with some proposition, but with in accordance with the person of Jesus Christ, right? Um, so... To, to truly inhabit reality then, and again, it's a grandiose claim, would be to enter into the reality of the resurrection, would to be enter into the reality of the life of God, the love of God, the goodness of God, to you know make our exodus out of sin, out of death, mm -hmm. out of deception, all these different things, and to begin to learn how to inhabit this new story and what's our, what's our part, you know, I'm still figuring out. So okay, I knew what my role was in that sort of fiction that I used to, the story that I used to inhabit. But it's like, well, what's my role now? You know, what's what part do I play uh, in the story? Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.